0: Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, and in my divine quest to explore areas of comedy and introduce you to very interesting people who you may not know, those two are converging this week and next, because my guest is Jeffrey Sweet. He wrote a book in the late 70s called Something Wonderful Right Away. And it was basically about the birth and emergence of improvisational comedy. And basically, it is lots and lots of interviews with famous, fascinating people. Like uh, Mike Nichols, for example, talks a lot about uh, Nichols and May. So if you don't know the history of improvisational comedy... You're going to learn an awful lot. Like I said, he's a fascinating guest, and he has updated his book, so he has added a lot of new things and updates on people and uh, organizations. Again, the book is called Something Wonderful Right Away. His name is Jeffrey Sweet. Meet him right now on Hollywood and Levine. Well, it's 1978, it's December of 1978, and I go on vacation, and my partner, David, and I had made a blind pilot deal with NBC, we are looking for an idea for a pilot, and one of the books that I brought with me on vacation was this thing that looked sort of interesting called Something Wonderful Right Away, and I loved it. And it introduced me to the world of improvisational comedy, the birth and evolution of it. And I got a pilot idea out of it. We did kind of a Nichols and May pilot for NBC that didn't go. It was passed on so they could pick up Pink Lady and Jeff. I'm not still bitter about that. Uh, But also for research, I joined an improv workshop And I have been doing it now for 44 years. And so that book has had a huge impact. And first of all, Jeff, it's Mm -hmm. nice to be able to publicly thank you for writing the book. And now you have an updated version of it. So my first question is, what prompted you to write the book in the first place?
1: I just wanted to meet those people. It's 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 a great excuse. That, that crass, I, uh, you know, Nichols and May were my, were my heroes. I wanted to, I wanted to meet them. I wanted, I figured that they would be entertaining company. Um, I had no sense of it having any larger importance. In fact, when I thought I would write it, I thought it would be, there'd be like 10 or 12 interviews and that would be it. And I would have a, a short, fast book and it would be, it would, it would tell the story and I would meet the cool people. And then I got sucked into the subject matter. <laughs> <And> it, <laughs> it's and it funny
0: how long. it does that to people.
1: Yeah. And it took longer to put together than I expected. And it also became uh, about something other than I had anticipated. Uh, it became a much more, oh, I hate to say this. It became a more serious book. It had more substance than I expected. Uh, it wasn't just about how do we make people laugh. It's, uh, it was about uh how does theater reflect its culture how does it in fact help change the culture and about how these group of people uh, this group of people um i think uh had a lot to do with the cultural metamorphosis that happened in the in the 60s we think of it largely as rock but it was also comedy and i think these people were part of the forefront of that movement that uh, that changed uh, the culture the thing that um was interesting to me well, many things are interesting. One of the things that was interesting to me was that the people in the book, after the book came out, some of them said, oh, I didn't realize I was a part of something important until I read this book. You know, I just thought it was something I did on the way to the next thing I did. And some of the people, because of the book, realized that they were part of something larger than they had uh, that they had originally envisioned. They were part of a history and a phenomenon that um, that they hadn't understood until they heard from uh, their colleagues. Uh, and that was that was kind of fun. That was kind of interesting to uh, to serve the community in that way. That the, the people read it and said, "Oh, I have a place in history." I, I had no idea. It's a little bit like uh, what's the character in in uh, uh, Moliere's Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme, where uh, he's informed that he's been Fred. Speak- yeah, Fred. He's he's informed that he's been speaking prose all his life. You know, <laughs> I've been speaking prose all my life. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> who knew <laughs> so,
0: so let's go back to the beginning it's 1955 chicago how did this begin
1: well it began actually a little bit uh before that uh it began with a, a lunatic named david Shepard who took a, a hitchhike on a truck to chicago and he said to the truck driver hey man where's the action at here man man betokening his his hipness you know Mm -hmm. the truck driver had gotten an earful of his um his his left wing rhetoric which is you know what i think truck drivers always enjoy Uh, (laughs) may have said well you probably won't get murdered down at the university of chicago and he drifted down to hyde park which is a neighborhood of chicago where the university is and um, he's wandering around and he sees a sign that says you know tonight a performance of uh a performance of the Caucasian Chalk Circle, and it goes ding, 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 ding. It's both Marx and theater, you know, both of the things he loves. And he goes and he sees this wonderful production directed by this kid named Paul Sills, and he sits down with Sills and says, "Let's let's build a theater," and they build Chicago's first storefront theater, which is the Playwrights Theater Club, and they're putting on plays by Shakespeare and Moliere, and you know that gang, and the occasional original play. But Shepard is getting more and more pissed off because he thinks the theater should reflect what's going on in the audience and uh, uh, people drinking cocktails with their pinkies up and, um, you know, wearing crowns and stuff. But that's really not the, you know, it's not the people in the audience the you know, Hyde Park. And he wants to do plays about what's going on in the community today in Chicago, and nobody's writing those plays. How do you get them fast? Well, you write outlines and you improvise them. And it turns out that the, his buddy, uh, uh, Paul Sills, his mother, created a system of um, called Theater Games, a system for, for teaching and training improvisers, which is the training for exactly the work that he wanted to do. So that's how it came about. It came about because uh, uh, David Shepard wanted to put up these uh, socially aware plays of what was going on in the society. Nobody was writing them. How do I get them fast? Oh, we'll do like the Commedia dell'Art. We'll write these outlines, and then we'll improvise the plays based on the outlines. And um, for the first oh, a few months of uh, this place, which was called The Compass, The Compass Players. That was the main thing, which these shows, these stories that were be 45 minutes or an hour long. And um, then a bartender said, well, that's great. A bartender in the bar where they were playing said, this is great. You know, if the show were a little longer, I could sell one more drink. And somebody (laughs) says, well, um, (coughs) we've put up, you know, it takes us a week to come up with this, this stuff. And somebody in the room, I don't know who, said, you know, we, we're we improvising based on suggestions, so why don't we go to the audience and ask for suggestions and see whether or not we can make the show longer that way? And that's what they did. And so out of this high-minded desire to sell another drink came the convention of going to the audience <laughs> for suggestions. And then that took over the show. People were more excited to see what these people would come up with out of audience suggestions than seeing the prepared uh, hour-long pieces that they would come up with. And so the short pieces took over the show, and originally they didn't repeat the pieces. And then somewhere along the line, somebody came in and uh, said to Mike Nichols, I hear that you and Elaine made did a terrific scene about teenagers last week. Are you going to do it again tonight? And Elaine said, no, we don't repeat scenes. And Mike said, why not? Why don't we repeat them? Why don't we polish them? Why don't we take this stuff and make them as good as they can be? And so they started repeating and polishing scenes and build up this... You know, reservoir of extraordinary material, which we a lot of us know from the recordings of Nichols and May and uh, everybody else started building stuff. Shelley Berman started building the stuff that uh, became the basis of his act. And then finally, um finally, Compass fell apart because everybody was fighting and uh, nobody was a real businessman. And, uh, uh, you know, all that stuff was going on and it, it fell apart. Nichols and May went off to become a star. Shelley Berman became a star. Paul Sills was managing a nightclub in Chicago and he's looking at his friends who are, you know, very successful doing the same kind of material that you used to be able to watch for the price of one beer. And he thought, Hey, well maybe a more disciplined version of the compass would, uh, would go well. Now he said, let's reopen the compass. And David Shepard says, uh-uh, I owe the name. I, I own that name. You may not call it the compass. And one of the many disastrous decisions that, that marked the career of David Shepard, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh and they were trying to come up with a name for this new more polished version of the compass and they remembered this rude insulting argu- uh, article that uh, um um this uh, a new yorker uh writer wrote calling uh, chicago the second rate town and he called it the second city so uh they took what had been an in- an insult and turned it into it was, you know um uh sort of a fuck you back to A.J. Liebling who came up with this, you know. You're going to call a second rate? We're going to name a, a theater after that. And Liebling, shortly before he died, reportedly said that the one thing he would be known for was for having inadvertently named a nightclub, which proved that he still got it wrong because it wasn't a nightclub, it was a theater. And also, people remember Liebling as a tremendous writer. He did write some great stuff. He got the Second City stuff wrong, but... <laughs> You know, well,
0: if you're from New York, you probably go. No, you didn't get it wrong. He <laughs> didn't get it wrong. People uh, from LA go. Wait a minute, we're the second city. Uh, you know, uh, we're not. We're not the third city. I want to go back to theater games. Okay, theater. Uh, and and you mentioned theater games, which Viola Spolin was Paul Sills' mother, and she came up with this. Yeah, talk a little bit about what. The theater games were, what some of the theater games were, and what the purpose of some of the theater games were.
1: Well, Viola started off um, um, working with a woman named Neva Boyd at a place called Hull House. And Hull House was a place where uh, the children of immigrants uh, uh, met with her, and she taught them storytelling games and uh, games that she had collected from her travels in Europe. And this made a big impression on Viola. Viola then, as a young woman, went to New York to try to become an actress and to get in with the group theater and uh, wasn't successful. Came back uh, to Chicago in time for the uh, the Depression to hit with full force. Was hired to start a children's theater company. And she, um, she didn't want to be one of those bossy children's theater directors who said, now, Jimmy, go three steps down towards the audience, look at the exit light and say, in your loudest possible voice, here comes the king. She really didn't want to do that. <laughs> um, she, uh, she she knew that if you ordered kids around that they would be a, a snarky and, uh, and resentful. Uh, so what she decided to do was when she saw a problem on stage, she would create um, a game, a structure that if they followed the rules of the game, they would solve the problems themselves. So my favorite is the example of when she was dealing with two teenagers who were supposed to have a be playing a romantic scene but um uh, they were their body language was all inhibited and their arms wrapped around themselves and you know covering their face and all that sort of stuff she says all right we're going to play a, a new game it's called contact and the rule of contact is that whenever you have a line with another person you have to make physical contact with them that makes sense that supports the line so the kids you know, their focus went away from, oh, I'm self-conscious. Oh, what the hell am I doing on this stage? Uh, to how can I cleverly uh, respond to uh, the rule of the game? And they would figure out ways to to do that. And she would say, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that has to be in the final show. And she would take the best moments that had come as a result of playing the game. And that would be in the final show. And the whole show would be built out of her proposing these games and saying, oh, that's great. That has to be in the final show. And they would end up putting on a show in which everything that they put up was uh, something that they had created themselves that they felt a sense of ownership and pride in that they had not been coerced into by a bullying uh, children's theater director. It was a sense of empowerment. We're showing you what we discovered ourselves, what we found ourselves, but she didn't initially call them theater games. She just, you know, she called them problems. And, uh, my my best guess is that when uh, she her son, Paul Sills, finally sort of hectored her into writing her classic book, Improvisation for the Theater, he said, we've got to call these something. And uh, my hunch is that he's the one who said, well, there are instructions for play. Let's call them games. And so I think the term theater games probably came from Paul. I, I mean, they're both gone, and I can't ask them that question, but... Um, You know, she says in in the interview that's in the the new edition of the book, I didn't think of them as theater games. I thought of them as problems to be solved. But they were created so that she could uh, direct without being, uh, you know, coercive and bullying, Uh, which I thought was hilarious because when I interviewed her, she bullied me shamelessly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things that I enjoyed most about the book was the fact that it is – Primarily interviews with Mm. all of these people. And, you know, you really get a sense from them about what it was like. And one of the things about the new edition is you have this interview with Viola Spolin, who you had interviewed for the original, but then she wouldn't let you
1: use it. Yeah, she and, wouldn't let me use it. What, what, why? She says, oh, Jeff, people have been making money off of me for years, and I've decided to draw the line here. I said, Viola, you're drawing the line in the wrong place. I promise you I will make no serious money off of this. I swear <laughs> to you. And she Just, was wrong. She was wrong. That's this, right. I, you this, this man lives in, you can't believe, yes, Barra Splendor. Lago. This Splendor. Man lives, yeah. That's right. That's right. I, I I live in the most splendid one bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side. I I have gilt edged, um, what do I have? I have gilt edged letter openers. Uh, <laughs> no, nobody writes me letters, so I don't use them. But you know, I have gilt edged letter openers, and and no, I I I used to say that it would get get me enough money to buy me a yacht for my bathtub. <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> well, now you're having the book uh, re released, so yeah. maybe you can add a mudroom. So originally You know when when, You know you look back at Some of the material that They all did Hmm. These were basically college students Of the time It seems that The improvisations were More Intellectual More political More satiric It wasn't just about Okay, how can we make funny scenes?
1: Yeah, but that but then uh, this material has always been dependent on the audience and meeting the audience where it is. And when they started off this stuff, they were playing to a, a University of Chicago audience, a a, univer- a drinking University of Chicago audience. <laughs> They're terribly important, and even even when they opened up. Second City, uh, the audience was part of that, um, you know, intellectual Kennedy-ish kind of uh, 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 group of people who, you know, had moved to the suburbs and uh, and uh, listened to cultural FM radio and uh, and and read all the hot books, and uh, uh, so it was all it was an audience that uh, prided itself on its uh, its reference level and its sense of culture. It read everything. It went to see all the plays, you know, and. Um, you know, you could get off a good Kierkegaard joke. You know, today, if you tried a Kierkegaard joke, you would hear crickets. Uh, it's, um, but that's, that's the audience. And, uh, then the big change came when, um, uh, Saturday Night Live started and so many people for Saturday Night Live were recruited out of Second City and people started to go to Second City seeing, saying, Oh, who's going to be on Saturday Night Live left? So you started getting a Saturday Night Live television audience going to Second City, expecting to see Saturday Night Live style material on the Second City stage. And that audience expectation, you know, changed the show. Uh, also, uh, the actors who came to Second City wanted to get on Saturday Night Live. So they were finding their characters. And right. they were, you know, so SNL became the tail that wagged the dog. The Second City still did, did good scenes and still did very good shows. But um, also, a lot of the early scenes were really acting pieces, uh, long, one-act plays almost, you know, 20, 25 minutes long, some of them. And uh, you would never get away with doing that uh, in the uh, the post-SNL era. You would never get away with uh, acting uh, 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 subtlety that uh, Barbara Harris brought to the early scenes. Uh, I'm not saying that's bad, I'm just saying that's
0: well we live a in a tic- we live in a tiktok world so
1: <laughs> that, that that's true uh, and and people um, you you know you what you look at movies and you you rarely can see a movie in which a scene lasts more than 3 minutes you, um uh i don't know if you'd be able to get away with um uh, the opening uh, half hour of the godfather today with all these long scenes uh, done a m- I mean uh, spielberg has said that if he did um Jurassic Park today, he wouldn't be able to get away with holding off, introducing the dinosaurs for the first half hour. But uh, the audience would demand to see the dinosaurs early. Very true. Very true. So the audience, you know, the audience is more than most improvisational theater uh, takes its cue from audience expectation. Uh, And uh, if you don't make the audience happy, they're going to express their uh, their displeasure, and let me tell you, those those dinner rolls get very stale, and you can get a concussion if they're <laughs> old.
0: Mike Nichols and Elaine May, yeah, uh, talk about how their relationship began.
1: Well, their relationship began uh, in hostility. Um, he was terrified of her because she was terrifying, <laughs> you know. Uh, he he says in one of the one of the the stories he told me, you know, uh, uh, the one the one time she came in out of a storm and somebody uh, uh, somebody said to her, "Oh, hi, Elaine! You know, did you ride here on your broomstick." And she says, "Why? Do you want something up your ass?" And he thought, "Well, <laughs> she, she's dangerous." <laughs> and. Uh, he was he was in a, a production uh, uh, campus production of Miss Julie, which uh, unaccountably uh, Strindberg's Miss Julie, which unaccountably from his point of view was uh, given a good review uh, by a Chicago paper. So they were stuck playing it some more. And he said, I knew it was shit and she knew it was shit. And the way she looked at me, <laughs> I knew that she knew that it was shit. Uh, and uh they finally got together when they uh, happened to uh, sit next to each other in a train station waiting for the train, uh, the suburb, uh, the commuter train that would take them down to uh, uh, the Hyde Park area of Chicago because uh, the uh, L system uh, didn't do that. You had to take something called the Illinois Central to get there if you uh, if you wanted to get to uh, uh, the University of Chicago late at night. And they just started uh, making up a, a spy story. Uh, they started, uh, 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 I, I don't know if they, if they even actually acknowledged each other by name. I think, you know, may I sit here if you wish swordfish? Ah, the, uh, the password's a different one today. Tuna. I don't know, you know, it's not a, f- anyway. So they just started making stuff up and, and delighted in making stuff up. And he said, then we went to her place and she made me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and that was it. Um, the thing is that she could improvise with anybody, and Mike said I could only improvise with her. Uh, the other thing is that she could improvise endlessly in character, whereas he had a sense of shape that she didn't have. So she said he was she ought, she provided the cloth, and I was the tailor. Um, hmm. which uh, is is a great good way, way of putting it. Yeah, it was good. and and that's sort of the way they worked when she ended up uh, writing screenplays for him. You know, for. Uh, uh, for primary colors and for, um, uh, Oh, come on now. What's, uh, the, the rewrite of Lakaja Cage a Fall? Oh, a birdcage. Birdcage. Yeah. So, um, it became uh it be, it became a thing of, um, she just was endlessly inventive in character and he had a strong sense of structure and presentation. And, uh, you know, you can see it in, the, in their movies. Her films tend to be sort of lumpy and shapeless. They're, they're wonderful, but they're sort of lumpy and shapeless. And his have a, a sort of a machine tooled uh, precision, uh, which sort of surprised him. I mean, one of the things that he said to me was, when I look at the movies of Robert Altman, my, with my background, I should be making movies like his. And I, he says, I can't do it. He says, I can't, it's something about, I, I can't let, I can't let loose the way he does. So, you know, he could never be the one who would make a Nashville. On the other hand, uh, Altman couldn't have made carnal knowledge or The Graduate. Yeah, that's, and, uh, that's know, fine. We, <laughs> we, we profited from, from both of them being on. Exactly,
0: uh, exactly. Were they kind of stars of the show? Or did became. it just sort of emerge?
1: Yeah, it emerged. People came to see them because they started doing an, an extraordinary series of scenes. And so people would come to see them, just as uh, it became evident that uh, Shelley Berman with his solo pieces was carving out his own way. And indeed, when uh, Compass closed in Chicago, uh, the first stars to emerge from that were Nicholson, and May and Shelley Berman pretty much simultaneously. Uh, you know, they uh, they all became stars so swiftly it took the breath away. But they were ready. They had all this material that they had developed. In the back room of uh, of of, of this bar, in the small venues uh, that Compass played during its uh, during its life, Um, to me
0: they're very different. Though I mean, Shelley Berman was your standard stand up comedian. Not really. If you well, maybe his material was different, but you know, he got a he sat on a stool and he was a stand up comedian as opposed to Nichols and May. And in, in many ways, I think Nichols and May had a new style and sort of changed comedy in the well, early 60s, wouldn't you, you
1: go, say? Well, but if you go back to Shelley's original stuff, the stuff that established his uh, his reputation, their scenes, their monologues, their him as a, ca- a character dealing with, uh, you know, the famous scene of him talking to his, uh, his delicatessen father about how he wants to be an actor – that's a scene. Uh, the scene where he's listening uh, to a friend tell him how badly he behaved the night before. That's a scene. And then he learned how to be a stand-up. He learned how to tumble, and He learned how to term, uh, t- uh, tell jokes. But he was trained as an actor at the Goodman uh, School, and his, his model was uh, Ruth Draper.
0: Right. He was trained as an actor, but he got on Ed Sullivan as a stand-up comedian.
1: But he even so, a lot of those appearances were him doing monologues as a character. It wasn't him saying, I, I want to tell you and boy my arms are, are tired and you know. Um so use
0: that in in my
1: stand-up <laughs>
0: <laughs> damn Damn. Damn. <Yeah. laughs> how that one get away?
1: I I don't I don't know. You should you should see if you can bid on uh, Joan Rivers joke file. Did you see that? Six you,
0: you know uh <laughs> <laughs> the first money I ever made as a writer was writing jokes for Joan Rivers. Uh, yeah. No, so some I, of my jokes might be in
1: there. Uh, I, <laughs> I, 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 I bet they
0: are. Are they worth the $5 she paid me for them?
1: I, uh, I, I don't know. She was, uh, she was a delight to interview. I must say she was still furious about how she had been treated there because, uh, when she came in all brash and, uh, with her persona, uh, Del Close couldn't stand her and was, you know, made that clear. Uh, but she, she said she learned a great deal there. And she did create a couple of classic scenes there. Um, and also, I don't know if you saw it. You, you probably did. I don't think this is an, uh, an unusual um, observation. Uh, her behavior privately was wildly different than her public persona. Yes. Yes. She, 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 she was kind. She was generous. Uh, I don't ha- still have them because I'm an idiot, but she sent me a few notes and she put smiley faces in the O's. And I thought the stage version of Joan Rivers would mock somebody who puts smiley faces in their <laughs> O's. But she put smiley faces in her O's. And um, um, I remember when a mutual friend of ours, uh, the great uh, character actor and Second City player Tony Holland died. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a memorial for him at the Public Theater in New York. And I was there, and she was there, and uh, our mutual friend Bill Alton was there, who was also at Second City. And Bill broke down in the middle of his tribute, and he couldn't talk. And Joan, you know, comforted him and and helped him uh, leave the stage. After the tribute, she saw me, and she says, come walk with me. And we went walking around the village, and I just shut up and listened to her talk and talk and talk about how much she loved Tony Holland and what a genius she thought he was, Um And it was a side that I think that a lot of people who knew her public persona would not have realized was there. The extremely sentimental side and the the strong attachment she felt uh, to the people she loved and the strong loyalty. I know people who worked for her who said she was a sensational boss and that when she finally closed down her, uh, her talk show, she went to each of them and said, ask me for a favor you think I can give. Just ask me for it. And she went and did... Uh, she asked them to ask her for favors as as a parting gift on the show. Which uh, what a cool thing! Yeah, I I I don't I don't think that you the James Corden did that.
0: And that is part one of my two part interview with Jeffrey Sweet. Once again, the name of the book is Something Wonderful Right Away, and I recommend it. So more next week. As always, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to John Wolfert, Bruce and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com is my email address, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Also available on Instagram, where you can see some of my latest cartoons. That's Hollywood and Levine. Part two with Jeffrey Sweet coming up next week. Have a good week. We'll see you soon. Bye. Hollywood and the Vine!